Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. Hey, social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. In place of democracy, very good. (laughs) Howdy and welcome to Democracy Sausage out of the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and this podcast comes to you with the support of the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now last week I spoke to a couple of terrific ANU scholars, Yun Jung and Graham Smith, about China, the region and the nature of our ties with that burgeoning power. It was an illuminating discussion and I finished off asking them both where they thought Australia's relationship with China would be in, say, a year from now. Neither hesitated opining it would probably be worse or at least no better, which is pretty worrying for a host of reasons, not least because, frankly, without China's hunger for our exports, particularly bulk commodities, but services too, we would have followed just about everyone else into recession a decade ago during the GFC. Two-way trade with China is currently worth about $235 billion, notwithstanding a plummet in our relations with Beijing at the moment, and several export lines being under suspension or hit with new import tariffs. Today I've got a couple of worldly economists who know quite a bit about China and the history of our relationship. Tim Harcourt is Professor of Practice in Economics at University of New South Wales, and he's also known as the Airport Economist. He's been on uh, Democracy Sausage before. Welcome back, Tim. Hey, Mark. Good to have you here. And Professor Jane Golly is a specialist on the Chinese economy. She's also director of the Australian Centre on China in the World here at ANU and a regular contributor to Democracy Sausage. Always good to have you back, Jane. Thanks for having me. Now, before I get to China, I just want to get to uh, another big sort of cataclysmic event, perhaps not seen as such, but uh, certainly historic event in Australian politics, and that is what happened in WA over the weekend. Um, Tim, you know, having been having worked for uh, in politics yourself in, 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 and worked in Austrade and various other things in a rich career, what did you make of what happened in WA? I mean, this was an extraordinary result where the opposition's been all but wiped out of the parliament. It's extraordinary, isn't it, isn't it Mark? I mean, people thought Labor would get an 11% swing. It got sometimes in some cases close to 15. And, of course, the National Party, which is not in coalition in WA, has more seats now than the Libs, who uh, only may have two or two or three, possibly two at the moment. Uh, it's not unrelated to China. Um, the Premier, Mark McGowan, did offer Canberra that he could negotiate with China to get ourselves out of this trade spat. And it's not, su- it's not surprising that, it, you know, he did because... Um, you know, the WA economy is very strong because of its strong ties to China. And I interviewed Elizabeth, Ford, uh, Elizabeth Gaines from Fortescue last week, and, you know, they've almost never had it so good, or at least for the last uh, 10 years, uh, in terms of iron ore exports from the Pilbara to China. 
And I think, you know, the economy was strong. Uh, Mark McGowan, despite being from Newcastle originally, his, his parents took a car- caravan across the Nullarbor to help him campaign in Perth. Uh, he he was uh, very took a very strong line on COVID uh, in shutting the borders, and that seemed very popular in Western Australia. Uh, and um, you know the Libs were were all at sea. They they told him to close the economy. Then they said they should open it up. Uh, then they said they should close down the uh, Collie uh, coal-fired uh, power station that had a huge swing to Labor. And um, finally, just on a on a on an observation about Mark McGowan personally, he just seems very credible. Um, I met him just after Bob Hawke's uh, funeral service in Sydney, and he just seems very credible, very reliable. Uh, he's sort of a, a very uh, nice man with a lovely wife, very committed marriage, three children, you know, good family man with a nice clean white shirt and nice haircut, and just <laughs> seemed, to be, seemed to be the sort of people that people really vote for. And also, he was a lawyer in the Navy. That's what took him to WA for, for 25 years. So he wasn't a sort of staffer uh, type. He was he had a career before politics. He just seemed to have, seemed to really resonate with the electorate. Yeah, but it's it, it, that's true. But it's nonetheless, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's not surprising in a way that being parochial works, especially in WA, in, in the sort of geographically outlying states like Queensland and WA, Jane, that kind of politics has always worked, you know, being pro-Queensland or being pro-WA. And, you know, there's that whole history of, of sort of secession secessionism in WA that sort of bubbles up every now and then. And really what we've seen through COVID is McGowan using that geographical isolation to great advantage, uh, saying, as, as indeed Palaszczuk did in Queensland, but, but, but probably with even more effect in WA, saying, I will do whatever is necessary to keep the population safe. Um, so did the Libs just bugger it up by, by, by not being as, you know, absolutely one track about it? I don't think I'll focus on the political play there, Mark, but I think I will put China back right into the centre sure. of it. I mean, to look at WA, the reliance of that economy, 20% of its gross state product I learned last week comes from iron ore. And 20%. It's, a fifth, it's, it's amazing, isn't and it? And then really? two-thirds yeah. of Chinese imports of iron ore come from Western Australia. So while the Western Australian economy is in a boom because of what's happened with iron ore and China, you know, despite what's happening in the rest of the economy, uh, I think they're really interesting to look at to see just how different their China views are. You're not going to hear as many Western Australians saying, like I heard a couple of people on the drum last week saying, you know, the Australian government's absolutely getting it right. If we have to suffer the economic consequences of standing up and playing tough on China, so be it. They're not the ones taking the hit. You know, the coal industry, the the New South Wales uh, state, Queensland as well, the economies are really in trouble. uh, And that has a lot to do with China. WA is kind of booming. There's a big question about how long that will last, and I think that's probably one of the things we want to talk some more about today, this dependency and diversification and what it means. Well, it means very different things for different states, and WA's kind of standing out for a whole bunch of reasons at the moment. Makes you wonder whether WA oughtn't to be running a state-based sovereign wealth fund uh, to uh, spread some of this wealth out longer than the resources or the demand for those resources um uh, you know, runs at the level it's running at the moment. I think that sounds like a fabulous idea and, you know, was asked by the ABC last week exactly that question. What uh-huh. What's the WA government doing? And I don't have the answer to that, but that would seem like a really good idea. I did also find myself teaching my son the meaning of succession yesterday, so um, we might need to watch out for that too. Well, uh, yeah, on the question of succession or the question of what happens now, um, do you see any, and I'll get your thoughts on this also, Tim, but uh, first to you, Jane, do you see any dangers for a government that ends up just in such a dominant position that it's that it's virtually got no opposition? Is that, well, a, is that a kind of a, you know, one of those things where it looks like a great victory, but it also could be the seeds of your undoing? Well, I did see the Australian map yesterday with the great Western Australian state, you know, all painted in red. Uh, And you certainly don't want to have a one-party state within a nation that is, you know, continually looking at the other big one-party state and and finding all sorts of concern about that. Uh, Who knows where it goes to from here? Tim? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big big strawberry at the moment. It's almost all red with a bit of 
green for the for, for the nationals uh, in the in the in the rural areas. Um, Menzies always said he preferred to govern with a majority of one than a hundred. I think he uh, found uh, you know sixty one to sixty three quite a good term because he was on his toes. Um, having said that, I, I reckon um, McGowan's such a such a sort of sensible, moderate fellow. He'll be really, really careful about the large majority. He was really careful in the election not to be arrogant, not to take anything for granted. So I think he'll carry on that um, that uh, type of stance, uh, you know, as he as he governs. And well, that's true. But 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 of course, the problem you sometimes have in those circumstances is you end up with quite a large backbench. You end up with a lot of people who think they should be on the front bench. You end up with people who think the party's so the government's so dominant that it has no sort of resistance from the other side of the parliament that they can sort of get a bit loose. You get a bit, you get you know problems of the sort of opposition within rather than just uh, um, you know the, the formal opposition. Things can get untidy, which I suppose is really the basis of what Menzies was talking about there with you know governed with majority. I, I remember Mike Rand saying the same thing that. Um, you you know you, you're better off in politics always governing as as if you have a wafer thin majority, uh, because it's a it's a really you know good form of discipline. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see if even if McGowan is disciplined, whether everyone remains disciplined in that way. That's one of the big risks of those um, big landslide wins. I would have thought. And just a footnote, Mark uh, Hannah Beasley, Kim Beasley's daughter, won the seat uh, of Victoria Park on her third attempt at getting into politics. So. A big P for persistence. For yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go from that uh, virtual, almost one party state to the to the <laughs> to the to the bigger one one party state, which is for a long time helped make uh, help make Western Australia and 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 Australia indeed um, wealthier. As I said in the introduction, I asked uh, Graham Smith and Yun Jung um, what they where they thought the relationship would be, say a year from now. Can I get? Just as a sort of a, a you know, just for the sake of um, you know uh, having a benchmark, get both of your impressions on that. Perhaps you first, Jane. Uh, do you think the relationship, our bilateral relationship, I'm talking about here, has um, further to fall, or will it uh, stabilise? Will it improve over the next twelve months? Oh, I mean, it can go in any direction, but I'd agree with both Graham and Yun. I think the most likely trajectory is that it continues downward. And I've been tracking those trends, you know, back to at least 2014, and it's a pretty steep and consistent trend downward. So I think the best that we can hope for, and I'm not optimistic about that, is that there's a stabilisation of that. Of course, that's what the Australian government would like to see, uh, I presume. And actually, I know that the Chinese government would also like to see that. But the big challenge that both of them face is that neither is prepared to accept any blame for how it's gotten to the point that it has. And so they're stuck at a bit of an impasse, really. Well, I would have thought, just before we go to Tim, I would have thought if, as you say, uh, the Chinese government you know, wants to see the situation stabilise or improve and the Australian government likewise feels that way, that provided there are no further outbreaks, no free freelancing diplomats on Twitter or, um, or uh, bellicose statements from prominent backbenchers or even ministers in, in this government, that there is some scope for stabilisation at least and from there to, you know, the first tentative rapprochement. So there is some scope. As I said, it doesn't hurt to hope. It doesn't. I think <laughs> I'm going to have to hope for a miracle. I mean, you've just listed a few things there, but I'll give you the next one that's on the front page today. It was on the front page last week on the Financial Times, uh, Joe Biden saying that he's enlisting the quad to counter China. Mm. Uh, Peter Harcher today also using that same language of China's been aggressive and that's why the Quad's here and that's why we're going to get stronger and stronger. Beijing sees the Quad as a form of containment. Or well, Hugh White in that Peter Harcher article also refers, you know, saying we all want to contain China. I'm not quite sure he would have used exactly that language, but in any case he's um, on the record for saying that. Mm. Uh the Chinese in Beijing, the officials, are going to be furious. We know how they view that. And I've, I'm predicting that this sort of resurgence of the Quad and everything that it stands for, a free and open Indo-Pacific, you know, that to me, or Indo-Pacific, you know, that I, to me does contain quite a bit of hypocrisy. 
uh, and particularly when India is put so centrally into the mix uh, that's not particularly either th- free or open. Uh, they've, you know, rejected joining RCEP, for example. Uh, they've got a lot RCEP of their being own... being the regional... Comprehensive Economic, economic Partnership. partnership. Uh, a free trade agreement that they didn't want to join for protectionist reasons. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are all sorts of issues just about the quad alone that will continue to create tension. And I think we'll see a, an ongoing downward trend, uh, if that's given the limelight that many people here in Canberra want it to be given. Uh, I'm not sh- saying that it necessarily shouldn't be. I mean, there's lots of questions about whether it will be effective at either containing or countering China. But I also think it's important to recognise that Beijing will respond, and I think the way they're going to respond is by finding more ways to punish us economically, and that's going to hurt. Maybe not WA at this stage, uh, but the eastern states should probably be preparing. So iron ore will be all right, but other things that uh, you know WA doesn't rely on so much. Well, and there's a longer term issues with iron ore, and we can see that when we start, you know, talk more about China's 14th five year plan and mm. its longer term trajectory of getting out of steel intensive in infrastructure inten- intensive growth. I don't think it's going to be a positive sort of economic story for WA forever either. But the shorter ter- in the shorter term, I think they've they've got better coverage. Uh, not so for many of the other sectors. Uh, that that Beijing can and probably will use to signal its displeasure to us. All right, Tim, what do you think on that question of the, the relationship? Uh, is it destined to deteriorate further? Is it, is it already starting to do so? Yeah, I've been doing a show after the pandemic talking about this and I've been interviewing some Chinese academics and they're all saying, oh, it's going to get worse over the next year. But in some ways, some of them, Sort of are not not entirely independent from what uh, the government wants them wants them to say. In some ways, things like the Quad and RCEP, and um, now with the, the the sort of TPP minus 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 America, some of those international institutions may actually help because uh, China's got a role in some of them. And then with the Quad, you know, it shows that the you know the the world wants to. Think very carefully about about stability stability in in the region. Well, what's interesting to me is firstly that China's not just been fighting with Australia; it's been fighting with with the Czech Republic, with you know, with Brazil, with Japan, with South Korea, with France, with the UK, uh, with India, as Jay mentioned. So there's a lot of a lot of fights going on for China. It's a lot for them to handle, and uh, in some ways. Uh, the sort of unintended consequences of this is they've probably hurt themselves in some ways. And economically, um, a lot of their, uh, you know, their, their, their trade sanctions, actions against Australia will ultimately probably hurt China uh, you know, more than us. So we might find there's lots of uh, rhetoric around, but uh, um, economically, I reckon actually things will probably stabilise a bit as well as things like RCEP and the TPP coming on board, it's almost giving um, a little bit of, take a little bit of pressure off the uh, the fiery bilateral relationship. I might just follow on with that. I was on a panel with the Japanese ambassador, newly arrived here in Australia last week, and he was reminding the audience that you know, Australia's not alone here, that they're all we're all facing these challenges with China. And there's a certain truth to that, and Tim's pointed that out. You know, they've got disputes or they've they've used some sort of economic coercion or some punishment strategies against particular sectors in quite a large number of countries now. But I still think Australia's an outlier. We're an outlier in how quickly the relationship is deteriorated. I think we're an outlier in how vocal the Australian government has been in driving some of those trends, uh, and we are absolutely an outlier in terms of our vulnerability to China, our reliance on them, uh, our sensitivity, you pick the word, our dependence. Uh, I think they all put us pretty much in a class of our own, where I'd be hoping to see that we could be just pulling back a little bit and looking like our problems were only as bad as Japan's. I, I don't agree with the ambassador that, you know, that it's just as bad there as it is here. I think it's a whole lot worse here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it sort of almost comes to my mind that Australia has its foreign policy in this regard is is, is a little 
little bit like the youth wing of a political party, just that little bit more sort of energetic and vibrant than perhaps necessarily needs to be the case, uh, lacking a, a little bit of nuance from time to time. Uh, now, I know that this is such an inflamed space that uh, no matter what, whatever position you take, you're either a hawk or a dove, you know, a hawk or a panda hugger, as they say in, in the case of this, this China debate. But um, look, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, I might just get you, Tim, to uh, give us a little bit of a snapshot of the of where this relationship began, began the bilateral relationship between China and Australia, because I know you've written about that. So back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Tim... Just take us through, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, just quickly the, the history of the Australian-China bilateral relationship because it, um, I think it just helps us put in, in perspective where we are now. Well, of course, uh, uh, Mark, the, you know, the, the, the Chinese people have engaged with us you know, since the 19th century. The Chinese did a great job building up uh, the retail sector uh, when they came for the gold rush and a lot of the retail sector they took back to uh, back to uh, back to China. You know, a lot of the the, the Chinese Australian immigrants played an important role in that. Uh, in the nineteen twenties, we had uh, the sort of first Austrade office in Shanghai. We had a trade commissioner there. Uh, Shanghai in the twenties and and uh, Japan in the thirties and Indonesia, Batavia, Jakarta in the in, in the forties until the sort of British want us to close them all down and. Um, the war, war intervened, and um, it was really Gough Whitlam uh, going to China as opposition leader in uh, 1971, saying that he would recognise Peking or Beijing as it is now if he got elected. That was the, the big move. Is is this one of the uh, rare moments where an opposition leader, rather than a government leader, has made a sort of a pivotal foreign policy change that has has had um, quite significant long term consequences? Yeah, I, you know, I think probably Laurie Breton uh, championing East Timor from opposition was the next time that happened. It's quite rare. Mm, and also, Im- importantly, I mean, uh, Gough was trying to be the first Labor Prime Minister since Ben Chifley in 1949, you know, the year of the Chinese Revolution. So, you know, quite a big risk. And uh, he got he got bagged by, by the McMahon government until they found out that, of course, Henry Kissinger and Nixon were doing the... Uh, the same, the same thing, and it became a great triumph. And I, I interviewed the late Doug Anthony about it, and he just said that, you know, Goff surprised us all on China. He, he made a big risk, made a big statement, and uh, it paid off. You know, he gave uh, Whitlam great credit for uh, for that recognition, and it sort of continued on with um, not not smooth sailing. They've, all of the prime ministers have had their falling out with China and, and redemption. Uh, John Howard. Started off badly and then uh, got together and they had that LNG deal and they decided to concentrate on the economic relationship. Uh, Bob Hawke, of course, had tears over Tiananmen Square, but the Chinese said that he was a true friend of China uh, and was very popular there. And, uh, you know, similarly, in in recent years, Kevin Rudd had his ups and downs. Uh, Julie Gillard did did quite well. Turnbull had had some respect there, but... Now, uh, quite unusually, you know, you've seen a bit of a war, war of words with China, and that's uh, that's quite unusual uh, diplomatically, despite the exponential growth of the economic relationship. So, uh, it, it is interesting to see 
you know, uh, some hostility towards China and vice versa bilaterally, because I'd say it would be a, a bumpy ride before, but not uh, not as uh, not as tense as this. Yeah. So, Jane, is it fair to say that the the, the big dynamic change there, as Tim says, a pattern of, uh, of of sort of ups and downs, but a mostly very sort of productive relationship bilaterally certainly uh, has uh, you know fueled a lot of Australian wealth and uh, been good for China's growth as well um, and a lot of cultural exchange too you know vast number of Chinese Australians these days and um, a lot of integration of Australian businesses into the Chinese economy um, but is it fair to say which takes us back I suppose to this quad argument that the big thing that's changed, if there was, if you had to pick a single dynamic, which is probably a fool's errand, but nonetheless, it, it is the changing character of the Chinese leadership over recent years. I can't help but be a little bit provocative, Mark. I'll say there's two big things that have changed. That is absolutely one of them, and it's been really well discussed now. I think everyone's pretty clear that Xi Jinping's China is not the China that many people were expecting or I would say wishfully hoping that it would become. Uh, he's made that abundantly clear and it is more authoritarian, more repressive. You know, there are a whole bunch of problems and we could focus entirely on mm. that. But I think that misses the other big part of the picture and that is that this is a great power dynamic and the United States in the last few years, I think often using the authoritarian argument as an excuse. But what's become really clear is that China genuinely is a threat, or at least that's how many of us see it, or a threat or a challenge to American primacy. It plays out primarily in the tech space, but in the you know in the economic space more generally. Uh, and they've risen to that challenge by opting for, you know, I get a slap on the wrist if I call it containment, but for for standing up and trying to counter China's rise because that will maintain their the position their position in the world where they want it to be. The other change, though, um, in, in, which is much more recent and much more nascent in the sense that we don't know how it's going to play out, is the uh, the end of the Trump administration, the election of the Biden administration. So this quad meeting that happened only a week ago, as we record this. Uh, the first ever leaders meeting of the four countries of the Quad um, is seen as very significant. The fact that a, a piece of what they call sort of international architecture has been elevated to leaders level when it had really only been a kind of a bit of a shadow structure before, uh, official level uh, discussions. No one took it all that seriously. It sort of just existed there and the argument was that these were the four democracies, you know, in the, in the kind of ring, you know, India, Australia, uh, US and, and Japan, and, that, and hence your sort of containment argument. Um, but then Biden comes along and he's very sort of decisively held this meeting. Australia's, you know, called for this. Um, uh, Scott Morrison's called for it. There's a real sense of purpose now in this. There is, and it's underpinned by strategic competition, and I think that shows that Biden is intent on having a fair amount of continuity with Trump's policies. But to add to that competition, he is going to refocus America's strengths on alliance building, and hence the Quad and the Five Eyes, and we'll see more and more of that. And I think there are a lot of people, again, here in Canberra who are you know, absolutely thrilled of, of I mean, Let's face it, most people are thrilled with Biden's victory last year, but that that is going to give us then the platform to join with the, the world's number one superpower and somehow alter the trajectory that I and I think still many others see as inevitable, and that is that China will still continue to rise up and be the number one economic power in this region and in the world. Uh, and so it's a question of how we play into that game over time, and I'm still always going to come back and be a whitest, um, you know, and the, the whole China choice. I mean, that's the other really significant change, bringing it back to Australia, is that for those last 50 years, the Australia-China relationships are precisely as old as I am, uh, you know, that was about engagement and a growing friendship with ups and downs. It is no longer about that. It seems to be about hoping, I think, that China is not going to take that top position in the world and that America will stay there because that's where most Australians and the Australian government and the regime more broadly feels most comfortable. Tim, uh, Jane makes the point that uh, 
there's an element of of this quad meeting of this whole development of of Biden having some level of continuity with the Trump administration. Of course, Trump didn't elevate the quad to this level, but he, he was nonetheless in a kind of a, a rhetorical war of uh, of words and 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 other things over trade and currency manipulation, and everything else, everything else with China for a long time. But the other development, really, of of this is. America's return to global leadership, or at least to try and assert its reassert its place in terms of global leadership. So, out of that meeting, for example, we see this vaccine diplomacy uh, initiative, where the Quad has agreed, somewhat unspecified in terms of how it's going to be done, but has has agreed. Those four countries have agreed they're going to put a billion. Uh, doses of a uh, of vaccine into uh, poorer countries, uh, needier countries, over the next whatever it is, uh, twenty months or so. Um, so that's quite different from what Trump was doing, isn't it? In that sense, it's interesting, isn't it, Mark? I mean, um, a lot of people didn't like the the crude Trump rhetoric, but with respect to his China stance, I think a lot of them quietly quite liked it because uh, in Brussels and Washington and uh, Tokyo and other parts of the world, uh, they were quite pleased that Trump was taking on China and because uh, a lot of them would want to continue it, and I think Biden does. And I think if Hillary Clinton had been elected, I think she would have been pretty hard on China too. They just would have been perhaps been a bit more subtle and, and diplomatic and not, not erratic. And uh, interestingly, um, if you read that book on Roosevelt's first 100 days, which I think Biden read as he prepared to be president. It does remind me a bit of that that period with uh, uh, the New Deal and particularly the post-World War II reconstruction period where America did lead the way with, with Bretton Woods, with uh, uh, the Marshall Plan, uh, with uh, similar engagement in the Pacific, you know, taking a, taking a world leadership view with the the GATT, uh, now the WTO, and so on. So I think we are returning to America being engaged in international institutions. And you even think about something like APEC that was you know, set up by South Korea and Bob Hawke and really um, given a lot of profile by Paul Keating. Um, APEC was a way of keeping America engaged in the Pacific uh, you know, as the Cold War finished. So this sort of American leadership is, is welcome, uh, particularly for a you know, small open open economy, middle middle power like Australia, but I do think that uh, despite um, a lot of people not liking Trump's rhetoric and particularly his behaviour and not not conceding uh, after he lost the election was disgraceful. But I, I think people didn't mind uh, some of his anti-China rhetoric because uh, it paved the way for them to uh, you know to set up their own uh, own China stances. It is just a little bit ironic that it's an anti-China rhetoric that then leads into the quad. And, you know, what is, yeah. let's be clear, a really fantastic outcome. If, if we're yes. now going to be donating a billion vaccines in order to compete with China, I mean, uh, who cares what the what the underlying cause is? That's a great outcome for the developing world. Um, you know, again, it, isn't it just a little ironic that it took a battle with China for that to happen? Couldn't we have been more generous without that? lying underneath it all yeah you would like to think so but uh, it's, i guess it's always been the way in this world you know competitive uh, tensions create uh, spheres of influence create uh, the need to draw support and strategic influence and uh, and so we've seen that in the cold war and 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 people are uh, likening this to the cold war you mentioned hugh white before jane uh, in the in the peter harcher column uh, today in the sydney morning herald hugh is uh, is is you know likens uh, the South China Sea to Berlin in the 1960s. And his argument is that the Quad, at least as, as, as we understand it from the article, his argument is that the Quad won't actually work, even though it's now much more muscular than it was, um, because, because in a sense, Berlin has already fallen in the, in the sense that the South China Sea has already been expanded into by, by China and the West didn't really do anything about it. Well, that's right. I mean, and it does come back to Hugh's bigger point. I just absolutely love his logic on the the quarterly essay that he wrote back in 2017 where he said that his original book on the China 
um, choice that he had been wrong on two counts, but that only made him more right. Uh, and, and the two, the two, it was beautiful. And the two, the two counts were that one, America had declined more rapidly than he'd anticipated, and two, that China had risen more quickly than he'd anticipated, and that all the more led to his you know, the way I see his thesis of saying, therefore, Australia should be careful, as he put it in the second essay, to not be the rats on a sinking ship. Uh, I don't think Canberra's listening well enough to Hugh White at the moment, if I could, you know, Mm. ask them to do anything. And it's just, please go back to that essay and listen to his magnificent logic. He knows I'm a widest. I'm not being sycophantic. It's just the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk now about the a bit more of the specifics of this because the the cost to Australia of this escalating tension has already been uh, manifested in, um, in, a, in a range of new tariffs and uh, you know, disruptions to exports and so forth. And one of the glib arguments that is sort of trotted out is, well, these exporters can diversify. They, we, we should have diversified more and they should do so again. Tim, what's that mean for someone who's – uh, perhaps uh, like a company that's expanded into China, they've probably had encouragement from the old organisation you used to work for, Austrade. Um, you know, been encouraged to expand into this market, and suddenly they're finding the the conditions pretty tough. I mean, in the particular, these statements like, "Well, we should diversify and find markets in other countries," that can be uh, that can be pretty hard for individual companies, can it not? Well, yeah, Mark. I mean, let, let's take Pip Crawford uh, from South Australia who developed Shearer's Hill wine specifically for Qingdao uh, in Shandong province, the sister province of South Australia. So she spent 10 years trying to build up her market there because, you know, Shanghai and Beijing are full of the French and the Chileans and the Germans and the South Africans. So she thought, I'm just going to concentrate on a little country town of 25 million people and really build my market there. <laughs> asking her to say, oh, well, sorry, Pip, can you go to Indonesia now? I mean, it's ridiculous because it's taken her 10 years to build up her, you know, relationship with a distributor uh, and and so on. So, you know, sure, we should always diversify. And as Jane pointed out, you know, China diversifies or tries to diversify in its sources of iron ore and coal and so on. But ultimately, it's it's not realistic. And it's almost like we have two camps in Australia. We have the sort of defence geopolitics, sort of cybersecurity crowd who, you know, I mean, with all due respect, don't think a lot about economics and they think, oh, we can just diversify to India. And even Peter Varghese, who wrote the wonderful report on Australia's future with India, he cannot cannot see any substitution substitution of, you know, the, the vast middle class of China for India, let alone any other nation. And um, secondly, there seems to be, a, I guess, another group that say... Yeah, it's all about business is business. So whatever the Chinese do, just let them do it and let them say it and bow lower and, you know, do whatever they say. And uh, I mean, you saw that that, that amazing uh, time earlier this year when uh, Andrew Forrest, Twee Forrest, invited the Chinese consul from Melbourne to join Greg Hunt's press conference without Greg Hunt knowing. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, went well. so, so it's in, in, in some ways, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, important to move a, you know, a, a rational engagement strategy between these two extremes. I mean, even um, even as Stephen Fitzgerald, the you know, Gough's ambassador to China, said, Gough wasn't a Sinophile nor a Sinophobe. He just thought you should have realistic engagement with China because they're going to be very important in the world economy and very important to Australia. I might. Can I stick on the wine industry? It's a bit early to be talking about wine, really. Yeah. But well, no, I'm glad you are because I was going to tell a little <laughs> anecdote myself. But you go. Oh, there's just so many. I think it's a really good prism to use to try and you know we can try and expand it up to the broader story. But I heard Tim Ford last week, CEO of Treasury Wines. Actually, he was on this panel that I was on with the ambassador, mm. and he was surprisingly both well optimistic. I think is the word I'd use in this case. He talked about how he was going to hunker down in China, that they're not planning to go anywhere, and he's hopeful that the political relationship's going to sort itself out and coming up with strategies to make sure that they keep their foothold in the Chinese market. And was his product or his products were subject to these quite punishing new well, import tariffs? So he didn't go into the details of that and I'm not quite sure how, you know, Penfolds is one of them. I mean, mm. there's been a story, you know, breaking in recent years about 
Chinese copycats yeah, of yeah. Penfold. Counterfeit yeah, wine. Ben, yeah, Benfold or something like that. Mm. Um, wondering if he's going to try and get into the counterfeit market and start counterfeiting his own wine so he could send it. I'm not really suggesting that he would do that. No. But not, in any case, never. he's planning to stay in. I know two other winemakers personally, and one of them has just said in the last two weeks or, or so that they're pulling out of China altogether, big distribution, you know, really mm. formally very much engaged, but the China business is over for them and they're looking for opportunities in Vietnam. And then another one who sold their vineyard over in South Australia in the McLaren Vale uh, last couple of weeks ago and they didn't sell it because of China. They'd never had a distribution in China anyway. They were actually more focused on the US. So there's mm. two really different cases there. Uh, and I think that's an important point to make, that every individual wine maker here in Australia will be coming up with different strategies. But collectively, there is no substitute for the Chinese market. And I sound like a crack record. Anyone who's heard me talking on wherever will have heard me say that before, but I can't get away from it. It's well, like- just the sheer <laughs> scale of it it's, it's uh, and the, the extent to which it's developed so far makes that a fact, doesn't it? Exactly. So some hunker down and manage to come up with their Qingdao market or whatever it might be. Others sell out, still others try and expand elsewhere, but in aggregate, the only way I can see that going with a 200% tariff on Australian wines is- a shrinkage of the market and people going out of business. Yeah. I mean, and the other, just quickly, the other anecdote, which is, is I think, so worth watching, the, the video that the, interna the International Parliamentary Alliance Against China put out, sorry, on China, uh, Andrew Hastie's lot. When I saw that advertisement, we might have talked about it last time, but, you know, they've got this advertisement with a Japanese woman saying you should drink you know, Japanese sake is the best and an American saying yes, we make yes. the best of Blanc and, you know, the the French doing whatever. And, and I thought, God, this is the Chinese government advertising uh, to say don't buy Australian wine, but it's IPAC advertising to say can all, all these countries are going to get together and buy Australian wine. But you can't tell a French consumer to drink McLaren Vale Shiraz, even though it's really good. Uh, they're just not going to listen. They're not going to listen. So that solution is not going to work either in my humble view yes it's but it is in these particular areas that uh, this pain is really felt isn't it it's relatively easy for for governments or even for politicians to be talking at a kind of a macro level to be you know dare i say it virtue signaling over this issue uh, but for those companies that have invested vast amounts of time and money into uh, you know establishing a presence in that market and who have been servicing those relationships over a long period of time. It's um, it's a it's a you know an extreme shock to that. I I, I myself uh, have been to uh, you know the trade expo in Shanghai a couple of times with um, uh, prime ministers or, or ministers, uh, and uh, you know that's there's, there's very much the sort of atmosphere of you know getting to this market there. Um, and I remember once actually meeting a couple uh, you know when I was flying out of Shanghai. Um, who were winemakers and from Tasmania actually, and who were you know going back and forth between there and China quite a lot uh, to you know build their build their company. And I just wonder what companies like that. And of course, there are many other product lines other than wine. There's a lot of services. Uh, very strong element, isn't it, of of the uh, of the trade? Well, I mean, we could have the whole session, and maybe we should soon on the education sector, which yeah. is looking. You know, I, I'm predicting that it's the next one on the chopping block if they really want to send a signal. We've already started to see the signs of that. I mean, there. I just heard yesterday actually that there are a large number of big sort of international education summits and all sorts of things happening in Beijing and probably across the country, Chinese officials basically sending the message, don't invite the Australians. Uh, there are messages going down to these very competitive, highly sort of, you know, all over the country with local officials going in and saying, don't send the students to Australia. And, you know, we're bracing for that. We've got COVID's kind of prepared us for that loss of international student revenue. But uh, if they want to unleash on us there, it's going to be really um, painful. And that's not to say that the Australian government therefore has to change its course, you know, and that they're in a really tough position. And I always want to acknowledge that dealing with this more assertive China and Beijing in particular. But please listen to the voices of the McLaren Vale and the universities and God knows how many other sectors that are really feeling the pain right now, the lobster fishermen among others. Yeah. Tim, it seems like one of the uh, most um, 
uh, I guess, worrying aspect of Xi Jinping's uh, new presentation or more muscular presentation is this growing nationalism, and that does seem like a way in which uh, the trade, the, the uh, export of education, that is Chinese students coming to study in Australia, could be affected. If, if uh, you because know, the the dog whistle there is really, um, if if Australia is an opponent of China, is is depicted that way. Then there'll be, you know, strong pressure on Chinese students to not go to Australia. That's a, a very strong part of our uh, our trade. What's it? The fourth largest export sector in in our economy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, um, funnily enough, um, one of the complaints of Chinese parents at my university was there were so many Chinese students here that some of the tutorials in economics were in Mandarin. And they got quite upset because they said, we sent our kids to Australia to learn other languages and meet people from other countries. Yeah, to have a, an international and, experience. And they are, they're, they're with a pack of Shanghai people and they didn't like it because they're from, you know, from Chengdu and these other, <laughs> and these other places. So, so it, it's interesting in, in two ways. One is, I mean, uh, Chinese people have great aspiration, whether it be um, a McLaren Vale Red or... Um, a university degree from from Australia that that's not going to go away despite uh, what what their government is saying. Secondly, I mean, the universities have such a great opportunity to rethink and reskill and rebuild Australia. Um, you know, there's a lot of students in um, regional Australia who w- would love to get a degree and would love to get training, short courses, uh, you name it. Uh, similarly, you know, there's a lot of people from disadvantaged backgrounds who would love a chance to to, to get to uni. And uh, in many cases, I think as as universities, we really should be part of the solution for rebuilding Australia uh, post COVID. Um, interestingly, I've talked to a lot of Chinese students and entrepreneurs, many of who have who have stayed here, like the generation that uh, Bob Hawke uh, allowed to stay. Some of them have set up great entrepreneurial businesses. I was speaking to a young woman uh, from a very small town in China who'd set up a business uh, called Belong Here, uh, looking after Chinese students with logistics, you know, how to open a bank account, uh, how to enrol, how to do these things, uh, as well as looking after those who couldn't get back, looking after their accommodation and their luggage and so on. So effectively a concierge for Chinese students here. So it's amazing the contribution of Chinese students stroke entrepreneurs who, who come here, many of whom stay, just like the Chinese in the gold rushes who started the retail industry in the 19th century. A lot of them in the 21st century are making an incredible contribution to the, uh, to the local economy. Yeah, I think that's a really a really good point. Look, I'm going to uh, end on this uh, with this question. It's a it's a curly one for you, or, or maybe just one you simply can't quantify. But we talked about the big change in the in the relationship being the election. Well, obviously Xi Jinping, but also more recently the election of the Biden administration. In terms of our bilateral relationship with China, can I get a, an impression from each of you? A guess, I suppose, it would be an educated guess as to whether the an election here in which the government changed would have any impact on the on the bilateral relationship. Would that, it, even if nothing else, offer Beijing an excuse to sort of pretend to start afresh, as it were, with a new administration here? They might not even pretend they could actually try and start afresh. Uh, would they, would Labor give them the opportunity? You know, I think Labor's in a pretty tough spot, but also I think quite clearly aligning or at least being pretty quiet on what it would do differently from the Liberal mm. government. Uh, and, you know, the Liberal government's got a large majority of the Australian people buying into the idea that standing up to China is a good idea, whatever the consequences. Well, maybe Labor's learned the lesson that there are, there's a limit to what you can do from opposition and if there is to be any sort of recalibration, you do it when you're when, once you're there. Well, that's right. I mean, we could be pretty sure that China's not going to be front and central of any kind of Labor election campaign. But sure, if uh, if what looks like the impossible at the moment actually happened, I think Beijing could take that as an opportunity. Uh, it would then be a, a question of how Labor would respond to that uh, in terms of 
allowing a little bit more distance possibly from the US alliance, which of course Beijing would welcome, uh, or whether they just continue along the same path. And then that trajectory that we opened up the discussion with today that Yun and Graham and others have pointed out as well, I think looks kind of set. Mm. Tim? Look, I, I think I think you can have a reset from incumbency. I mean, John John Howard did it. Bob Hawke was able to do it. Uh, so the present prime minister could do it if the Liberals stayed in, and maybe Frydenberg became prime minister. He could do he could do a reset. On the on the on the Labor side, probably right. It's better to do it from government. I think they learnt their lesson in 2019. Uh, an interesting wild card for me is. If Labor won and Penny Wong, as expected, was foreign minister, having a foreign minister of partially Malaysian Chinese descent, being of Asian descent, may be an advantage in the sense that China wouldn't be able to play the, you know, the the race card of white Australia beating us up uh, because they'd be facing a a foreign minister of, of Asian descent. I think they'd find that a little bit harder. I don't want to put extra pressure under on, on Senator Wong, but she has been very strong with her statements on on China and, and China can't play this sort of, as you call it, Mark, you know, virtual signalling, you know, race game uh, with her as they're able to do sometimes with the Australian uh, the Australian community, not, you know, not understanding our multiculturalism. As we saw with that, uh, that tweet from a uh, middle-ranking uh, foreign office uh, official uh, last year which was uh, very much in that uh, in in that uh, line of thinking look it's been terrific having you both on Jane Golly and Tim Harcourt uh, you've both been on before and uh, you will, will definitely both be on again if I can entice you back to democracy sausage uh, that's it for this week um, well I'll be back uh, later in the week with a, another episode uh, so until then bye for now thank you mm-hmm. 